0: going to read in Galatians 2. I'm going to read 1 through 10. Our focus is on 6 through 10, but they go together in their context. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour." so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. At first blush, Paul comes across as, I guess at best, indifferent to the apostles in Jerusalem. And at worst, and there are those who take this view that he is downright insulting, that he is disparaging of them in their ministry. But Paul has no reason to measure himself against the apostles. He's in fact trying to show his agreement with them not disagreement, and he also doesn't need to paint himself into a brighter shade for some kind of prestige or pomp or arrogance because he too, like they, are dependent upon a holy God. But what's in view here? The antagonists, those who have been trying to Persuade others, specifically in the Galatia region, who were converts of Paul, trying to convince them that the Jerusalem apostles were of the highest reputation. That they were the ones that ought to be listened to and that Paul had distorted their message, their gospel, in his telling of the gospel. Now, these are difficult sentences, as we said last week. Verses 6 through 10, apparently, in Paul's original Greek, are all one sentence. And then you see the parentheses in there, and it's even hard to read them in English. And then there's a parentheses inside of parentheses, something, again, that I think your English teachers probably asked you not to do in your essays. But if we were to take this Sentence and look at it, and I'd like to essentially give you the punchline first, you would read it this way. Verse six, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Verse seven, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel. Verse nine, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, they gave to me the right hand of fellowship see there's two very important things that happen here in seven and nine there's they're seeing and they're perceiving or knowing they're recognizing that's what paul is trying to drive home not only to the antagonists, those who had infiltrated his discussion with the apostles those who apparently, as I can understand it, dogged him throughout his ministry. But to the Galatian believers who were being persuaded by the antagonist, going in that direction saying, wait a minute, we've heard about these apostles in Jerusalem. They are of high reputation. They were men of renown. Maybe Paul did get it wrong. Maybe we need to listen to these folks. But the result of Paul's explanation here in 6 through 10, and indeed his whole trip to Jerusalem, was a decisive victory for what he's fighting for. And that's in verse 5. The truth of the gospel might remain with you. Paul was a freedom fighter. But what is he fighting for? That truth of the gospel. Not just something that is true, but truth. The doctrine of grace, the doctrine of grace of salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And what was needed here, what he was trying to show here in this narrative of his visit with them or the end of his visit with the Jerusalem apostles was a unity. A unity in a strong, vital, biblical doctrine Beyond personalities, beyond reputations, beyond geography, beyond ethnic boundaries. And so he says that he went to those or spoke to those who are of high reputation. And then later we see in verse 9 he calls them those who were reputed to be pillars. These were the 12, these were the apostles in Jerusalem, and at that time, it's not clear how many were still in Jerusalem, because remember of Acts 1-8, where Jesus told them that they would move from Jerusalem, that they would go out into the surrounding areas as the gospel spread. But they were referred to by the antagonists as, as somehow superior by their association, and it appears to be Um, From what I can understand, they would be referring to their association that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that what Luke tells us in Acts? That there were some who could look at Peter and James and John, and they could tell by the way they conducted themselves, these men have been with Jesus. And yet, these men are called also the pillars of, pillars of the church, and you know what a pillar is. It's a column that supports the weight of the building. It's on which the weight rests, and if we use, look at Paul's metaphor, you can, I think, easily extend your mind to say these are the pillars on which the weight, the re, the weight of responsibility of the church, the weight of responsibility for teaching and preaching and evangelizing for the church, the weight of responsibility bore on them. And we know something from the, not only the Gospels, but Luke's account in Acts of who these apostles were and what they were like. And, and there's, at least in my mind, no way that Paul is cutting them down. He, he knew they were qualified. He knew that they had been with Christ. And I'm sure that in their discussions, the, the being with them, they couldn't help. As John said, I, I can't help but tell of what we have seen and heard and felt with our, our own eyes, with our own hands, this relationship that they had with Christ. We know they were zealous men. We know they were risk-takers, and, and they were worthy supporters. They were worthy faces of Christianity, faces of truth. We, we, we know the impact that they had. Read Acts 17, where, where those who saw Silas with Paul in action, and I think it probably happened in other cities as well with Peter and James and John and the others who, who taught. What was their exclamation? The men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. There was a recognition that these men had a reputation that followed them because they were in Christ. But Paul says, they added nothing to me, they contributed nothing to me. He says, what they were makes no difference to me. Again, it's not an indifference to these men as his fellow laborers, but it makes no difference in terms of his gospel what they were or what they are at this time, the fact that they were with Christ, he can say, yes, but Christ gave me my commission as well. He gave me my gospel. And and yes, they had experiences that I think Paul wishes that he knew Christ in that way, had walked with him. But yet he says, they added nothing. It wasn't their reputation that adds anything to me. They didn't add anything to my message, my ministry, my status, my position in the church. But they also did not add any requirements to his gospel. They didn't add legalism or circumcision or any of those things to his gospel. But what this he is saying, I believe, is that he can put down or repudiate the false brethren and their message because the reputation of the apostles does not set a limit to the gospel. What they were is indifferent to the gospel. Where they had been did not in any way shape the gospel for God shows no partiality. Literally, for with God, a man's face does not count. Who you are, what they appear to be, what somebody pretends to be, or even what somebody wishes to be, none of that is an account to God. We, we, we know how people have looked at faces or the, the countenance of someone or the stature of someone and made a mistake. We heard that, I believe, uh, one of Chuck's messages recently about Samuel, you know, picking the one who would be king, going down the list of David's brothers and realizing, you know, God having to tell him, no, that's not how God sees. Because all, all of them, Paul, Peter, James, John, all of us are dependent Upon God's judgment, not upon the reputation, our reputation, our title, our position, our geographic location. So he says, there there is one message they didn't add anything to that gospel because they approved that gospel. It was the very gospel that they have been preaching as well. But some people read this, and they read in verse seven, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised and Peter to the circumcised, they read that as two gospels. There's a gospel to the Gentiles, the heathen, the pagans. Then there's the the gospel to the Jews. But there are not two gospels. There are overlapping areas of responsibility. There are overlapping areas of their preaching, there is one preaching, one gospel. And some look at these as, well, it looks like they pretty cut and dry. They put fences around the circumcision. It's, a, it's an abstract word that stands for something concrete. The Gentiles, those who were non-Jews. And then you put these fences around the Jews and the Gentiles. But I see this as not exclusive but inclusive I mean we we know from Acts what Paul's practice was he would go first to the synagogue to the Jews and he would he would look for the synagogue when he entered a town and so his his message was not relegated or sanctioned just to the Gentiles But he preached to those, and even in Athens, those who happened to be there, Jew or Greek. And so I think there is this inclusivity to the gospel, but with freedom. Because even among your families, as you discuss Christianity, you know that an individual member comes at Christianity maybe from a different perspective, even within a family, much less across ethnic boundaries. The approach is different because they're faced with different circumstances. Those who had grown up with the Old Testament, with the laws, with Moses, with the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who had grown up without that, the churched and the non-churched even today, there's a different approach. But is the need any different? <laughs> no. The salvation of the sinner is the need, and that's the same, but the approach can be different. And there are those who say, no, I, I see here again that separation, but I went to First Peter and only got through the first you know, chapter and a half, and I was looking for how Peter, does, does he call them Jews? Does he call them, um, you know, Old Testament saints or anything like that? And I came across these words. He called the ones who would read his epistle aliens, strangers, the chosen, children of God, believers in God, newborn babes, Never once does he use the word Gentile or Jew. There, there's no separation, there's no um, categorization in his mind. These are Christians. These are the people, the children, the believers in God. And in, again, I don't see that Paul has taken a different pro- approach than Peter or Peter, a different approach than Paul. There, Assignments were different. Their strategies may be different, but the goal is the same, the salvation of the sinner. Now there are those, and I think rightly say, that Paul does walk in this chapter a fine line. Thomas Schreiner writes this, Paul walks the fine line here, for he must maintain his independence from the pillars Yet at the same time, he realizes that if he does not have the support of the pillars, and I'm assuming no pun intended, he can hardly expect success success in his mission. What was the issue here? The antagonists, those who were saying in Jerusalem, those are the ones of high reputation, but Paul, mm, not so much. But what were they going to do? If Paul did not have their support, then he could expect and reasonably expect that every town he went to and every convert that came to Christ under his ministry would then be visited by one of these antagonizers after him saying, Paul? No, he's not of the high repute ones. No, he came late. Paul is a pretender. And he would have them following him around and putting in the heads of his converts that, no, he disagrees with the apostles. Don't listen to him and his message. But Paul also needed, and I think I would say it more positively, I believe that Paul demonstrates here that he was ahead of the apostles in thinking theologically. And what I mean by that is, there is the doctrine, there is the gospel around which they have united. And yet, thinking theologically involves, how do I spread that gospel? How do I get it to the people? How do I reach them? how now do I reach the Gentiles knowing that Paul is on the frontier here? And Peter and James and John, those from Jewish background, had pretty much stayed near Jerusalem, again beginning to move out. But Paul was bringing things that were, if I can say the word, new. They were different. And to sacrifice the truth of the gospel, salvation by grace alone, he needed their agreement. But to not sacrifice his commission, that which had been entrusted to him by Christ, he needed his independence. He needed to be able to show them how, what Christ had revealed to him about bringing in the Gentiles, into Christianity. And I believe that's why he had to walk that fine line here. But the crucial point is that it's not Paul's gospel or Peter's gospel, it's God's. Because we see here that he says, again in verse 7, and to me this is the key, these are the crucial points. The apostles were seeing, verse 7, and the apostles were recognizing, verse 9. What were they seeing? They were seeing that he had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Paul's ministry was an important advance for Christianity, but it had been entrusted to him. I mean, he knew that there was going to be debate. He knew that there was going to be questions. There were going to be concerns. But Paul was entrusted with that gospel. His commission, as he's already told us in chapter 1, was through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the first thing... The foundation, I believe, for a gospel minister is what? That he may be found trustworthy. Paul says, I didn't make my own commission. I was entrusted with this commission. It was given to me by God. God made me trustworthy of taking this gospel. And in Romans 1, he rejoices in this. He says, through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. See, I received this. I was entrusted with this, this apostleship, this gospel, this grace to bring about faith in the Gentiles. So they saw that he had been entrusted. It was something that they observed. It was not something that they made up or it was not something that somebody brought to their attention. (laughs) They saw it in action that these things are happening. But they also, in verse 9, recognized the grace that had been given to him. They perceived it because it was manifest. The grace of Christ in Paul's life and ministry was manifest to them. Again, they didn't have to be told, but they perceived it for themselves that that God had given him that gift in his ministry, that God had gifted him to be able to speak to the heathen, be able to get them to see the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Now, some take this as we would maybe use the term recognizing, recognizing. You know, I I don't know, a school assembly or something. You know, we recognize the teacher that has 35 years of experience, and they get a little plaque, okay? But that's not what's happening here. They didn't recognize Paul by giving him a plaque and say, go preach. They did not grant him that. They recognized it. They understood it. They understood that his apostleship had legitimacy, that God had given it to him. And so we see that they came to that understanding that God who was working effectively in their ministry was working effectively in Paul's ministry, verse 8. He effectually worked, and you would recognize that word as energy. And with what purpose? With a view to their apostleship. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means for their successful discharge of their ministry. God's in-working became an outworking. Everything that was necessary for them to do the ministry, their commission, their qualifications, and even its success, God was working in. God was orchestrating. And we know and we find this later on in Galatians that that Paul recognized it was through the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit that enabled him to do the things that he did. Yes, we see at this time in the apostles, we see the miracles, we see signs and wonders, and, and yet even Barnabas who came along with Paul says, yeah, we recognize that God's hand was at work allowing us to do those things. God gave those gifts to the apostles as well as to Paul, and they used them, and they were able to bestow them on others, and yet Paul says it was the working of God that made our ministry. The circumcision and the uncircumcision, yeah, they're different spheres of ministry, but why was Paul, would Paul use them here? Why wouldn't he just say Jew and Gentile again? I believe that as he speaks to the Galatians, he also, again, trying to point out to them that there is a, there is a contention among those who antagonize you and me and my ministry. There is this contention of what is the gospel But I am trying to point out that when you see that contention, you know that they have made an issue which is not an issue. We are united that we are working to retain the truth of the gospel as it is in Christ. And so Paul concludes with the words in verse 9, he says, James and Cephas and John granted me, gave to me The right hand of fellowship. That right hand was a a pledge of friendship, a pledge of sometimes a a covenant. And they recognized Paul as as a fellow laborer, not just as a, a you know, someone who from the outside, but a fellow with them. They saw, and Paul saw beyond their personalities beyond their appearance, beyond their location. They in Jerusalem, he out in Antioch. Beyond narrow boundaries of what people sometimes define as, this is the way it ought to be. But I think also in their fellowship, they recognize the the indelible imprint of, of God's grace. Different lives from different backgrounds, we even today, it, it's hard for us to, to recognize, I think, people who are different from us. I mean, I, I don't think anyone can live as, as a plain vanilla life as I have. And I struggle sometimes from people it, from different areas of the country or from different backgrounds or, or different church backgrounds. Where are you coming from? And, and yet part of that idea of fellowship is to recognize that people have come from different places to the same place, to the one, the Christ, to salvation by faith in Christ. And giving an opening for the fact that they have come from different places. They've experienced different temptations than I have, different fears than I have, different trials in their lives as well as the positive that God has given them different gifts than he has given to me. But what they did recognize and what we ought to recognize is a common ministry opportunity, fighting for the fellowship of the gospel. Yes, we fight for the truth of the gospel, but I think we also have to enter in that fight for the fellowship of the gospel as well. We can be ripped apart And I will admit that it is very awkward when I meet someone at Home Depot that I haven't seen for 20 years who used to go to this church and they extend their right hand. How are you doing? And I think about that right hand of fellowship. Do we really indeed have fellowship? So what is fellowship? They saw each other as brethren, as fellow workers. And we sometimes, especially in evangelical churches, we like to toss around that that term koinonia. And it's neat, I guess, that you know a Greek word, but what does the Greek word mean? Well, again, just like in our society, it can mean a common participation. That's the generic meaning of the word. My neighborhood has a neighborhood pool, and we get these flyers or emails sometime. Come down to the pool on Saturday night and enjoy food, fun, and fellowship. And at first, it kind of took me off guard. It's like, oh, somebody's going to hold a Bible study? And that's not what they mean. It's just come and participate. It doesn't mean swim, because none of them swim. You get in the water and kind of move around and talk. But... Churches can fall into the three deadly Fs as well. Food, fun, and fellowship is church. But what does it mean in this context? And I think it's interesting that we've just talked about one gospel and one God working for the truth of that gospel in these men, and then we add fellowship to it. It's not gospel over here and fellowship over here. And we've been accused of this in the past in this church of being, oh, you're a teaching church. We want a fellowship church. You need to take fellowship off your sign. The context is gospel and God working and fellowship. So what is koinonia? Paul uses the phrase in Philippians 1. He's thanking God. He's just overflowing with thanksgiving in there. But you read down, and one of the things that it has caused him to, to see as kind of the culmination of what he ought to be thanking for was their fellowship in the gospel, their participation in the gospel. All that belongs to the defense and propagation and confirmation of the gospel. That's koinonia. And it's a sympathy, it's a participation, it's a cooperation in that mission of keeping on in the truth of the gospel. It's our, as one commentator calls it, the communion connection that we have with God the Father through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It was bought for us by the blood of Jesus Christ from his crucifixion on the cross and resurrection from the grave. Or as Paul says, and this phrase is is one that we ought to meditate on, the people, the fellowship of the people for whom Christ died. And so we have this participation, this unity in the truth of the gospel, this fellowship. It cost Christ a lot. But I think it also cost Christians a lot, if we would truly think about it. Do we spend enough on fellowship? Do we count the cost of what it takes to truly have fellowship with one another? Paul says, "Be diligent to preserve the unity of the faith and the bond of peace. He, he doesn't assume that it's just going to happen. Oh, you're all Christians, let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya. That's not fellowship. He says it takes energy, it takes work, it takes diligence. To the Philippians, he says, only conduct yourself. He's, he's already thanked God and praised them, For their fellowship in the gospel, participation in the gospel, he says, from the first day until now. And yet later on, he says, only continue. Conduct yourselves in the manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's fellowship. That's the energy. That's what the right hand of fellowship signified here to Paul and it ought to, by extension, to his readers and his hearers. Now, to be sure, this is an amazing handshake, is it not? Dr. Piper at the seminary says this, quote, this might be the most significant handshake in the history of the human race. And what he meant by that was that here was the church united one apostolic ministry, one apostolic faith. And if you think about it, all 27 of the books of the New Testament, as we have it, are represented by these four men. All of the Gospels, all of the, of the letters, either directly or indirectly, are in this group of men who are shaking hands. Luke, and perhaps some say the preacher to the Hebrews had probably come under Paul's authority. Matthew was represented by Peter. Jude represented by James and all the others, the books and the gospels that they wrote. All the way from Matthew to Revelation. Here it is, one apostolic ministry, one apostolic faith. Faith. True unity is not found in personalities. It's not found in the titles of men. It's not found in the appearance of your face, your countenance. It's not found in the halls of fame in this world. But it's found in the one message of the gospel. It's found in the one God who works in all for the truth of that gospel. And it's found in that one love of fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we gather here now to celebrate that unity, that koinonia that we have in Christ. As we remember Christ in His death and His burial and His resurrection as we remember that cost that he paid, that we might have fellowship with one another and fellowship with him as the head of the body, even Christ. And so we ask that you would purge our lives of sin, that you would take away from us unclean thoughts and help us to think through what this fellowship means, what its value is to us as believers, as we Stand shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the gospel. And so we ask that you would do these things even now as we partake together. In Christ's name we pray, amen.